Thanks for checking out the Reveal Vineyard podcast. We are a Jesus-centered community in El Mirage, Arizona. We hope through these conversations your spirit will be stirred. For more information, you can visit our website at www.revealvineyard.com. Lord, just want to speak a blessing um, over all the, the dads here today. and uh, Lord, that your spirit would be upon them and encourage them on a day that's really set aside uh, to honor them uh, and to uh, recognize the role they play in families and also in our culture and our society. And so I just want to speak a blessing over all of you to uh, be the man that God is creating you to be, uh, to be the father that you want to be, the husband that you want to be, to be the man that you want to be. And so I bless you in that, that you would be strengthened with strength that is beyond yourself, that you would find the supernatural strength in the Savior of your Jesus, and our Savior Jesus Christ. And I bless you in all that you're doing. For dads that are weary and tired, Lord, lift them up and strengthen them to continue on the path that they would lead, not just by word, but through example as well. And let all of us just kind of take a step back for a moment and just really marvel at the uh, opportunity that you've placed in front of us. And so uh, I bless you, dads, in the name of the Father and the Son and in the Holy Spirit, I bless you. I bless you to receive all that God has for you today. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's give him a round of applause, everyone. Well, um, we're on week number five of our series on the book of Colossians there, and uh, we have been uh, uh, going kind of deep into this uh, study and um, looking at uh, this idea of what uh, God's trying to teach us out of this. took us four weeks to get through chapter one. Now here on week five, we're finally on chapter two. Some of you are saying, I'm preaching like I drive. I drive a Prius, very slow, but you know, so we're moving a little slow. It's going to pick up a little bit here, but we can't rush through this, right? Some things are meant to be savored, like a great steak. For you vegetarians, a great piece of grass. I don't know what you eat, something like that, right? I don't want to fly through it just so we can finish it. I mean, after all, it is the Word of God, right? If you've been with us for any amount of time, you know that the book of Colossians really isn't a book. It's a letter that Paul wrote to the church of Colossae, the people who made up the church of Colossae, which was located in modern-day uh, Turkey. Uh, the letter was written while Paul was in prison. He was nearing the end of a two-year prison term uh, for preaching the gospel when confronted with the option of either prison or stop, or either stop or prison. He was like, lock me up. I can't stop preaching the gospel. Uh, and so the purpose of Paul's letter was to kind of bring encouragement and correction to a very young church that was kind of struggling, struggling a little bit with their uh, doctrine. Uh, really what was going on was a syncretism, we'll put it up on the screen, which was this mixture of different religions, cultures, or schools of thought. And so they weren't really abandoning Jesus, but they were adding to salvation something other than Jesus. And so teachings were going around that Jesus is good, but Jesus alone does not suffice, that you need Jesus and. And so Paul kind of hammers home this idea of, no, it's Jesus and Jesus alone. Jesus plus anything ruins everything, is what he was saying. And so he builds this idea of the supremacy of Christ. And so we're going to start in chapter 2. I'm going to read through the first uh, five verses uh, rather quickly, uh, and then uh, we'll rest a little bit on uh, verses 6 through 9. 
So Paul says this. He says, I want you to know how hard I am contending or how hard or how great a struggle, is what he's saying, for you and for those at Laodicea. Laodicea was a, a city nearby. There are actually three cities around this, this area, uh, tri-cities. And for all those who have not met me personally. Paul says, look, I, I'm struggling. Uh, be, I'm in prison because you needed to hear the gospel. For two years I've been in this prison, and I'm struggling for you, and I'm still fighting for you to keep you on track and to keep your faith centered. Verse 2 says, my goal uh, is that they, all the people of the church, may be encouraged in heart and may be united in love. Hey, listen, if we're known for anything as a church, let us be known as a church that's united in love. Not just for us here, but for our entire community, that we are united in loving our community, that we are known for encouraging one another, giving preference to one another. Next week, we're trying to do a, a shout-out video and so what we've been asking from you is just on your phone, take a quick video of yourself giving a shout out to someone in the church who has influenced you or impacted you. Maybe it's somebody who watches your kids every week or somebody who's taken them to camp recently or maybe it's a regroup leader or just you know somebody who has uh, encouraged you. Listen, we need more of those, all right? And so if you can do it, film it, send it to any one of us. Uh, you can send it to info at revealvineyard.com. It's in the bulletin. Send it to marty at revealvineyard.com, uh, wherever. Get that to us because we'd like to use those for next week, but your time is running out. So some of those shout-out videos. Let us be known for encouraging one another, for love. Even in conflict, let us be known for assuming the best of the other person. Let us be known for uh, forgiving the other person. Listen, there's going to be a time when I'm going to frustrate you or disappoint you. Can you love me through that? Can you think the best of me through that? I promise to think the best of you. Can, you know, we have an agreement on that. And so Paul says, look, my, my goal is that the church would be encouraged in heart, united in love. And then he goes on to say, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that, that they may know the mystery. We talked about the mystery last time, right? That they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. Here's that word mystery again. It reminds us of Colossians 1. We looked at this last week. We'll put it on the screen where he says, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles, catch this, the glorious riches of this mystery. And then he says, and here's the mystery that Christ is now in you, right? This, this is what everyone's trying to grasp, trying to understand that Jesus who stepped out of heaven and put on flesh, Jesus who knew no sin and became sin for us, Jesus who hung on the cross three days in the grave and then conquered death, that same Jesus now lives in you. Paul's saying, look, for generations upon generations, the Old Testament saints, they could have never fathomed or never got their heads around this idea that God would actually dwell in you. So then it goes on, verse 3. It says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In other words, the secrets of life are contained in Jesus. If you want to know your purpose for being on this big blue marble, Paul says, start by looking to Jesus. And it goes on, verse 4. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, meaning someone's going to try to plant thoughts in your head that are going to seem plausible. They're going to seem like, okay, well, maybe, maybe. 
by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in your faith, faith as you were taught and overflowing with thankfulness. Now, we're going to move on uh, because Paul's going to kind of highlight this idea of the church being pulled away a little bit. And just um, Let's just pray because we've got a lot to discuss. I just want the Spirit to just uh, kind of move on us today. And so, Lord, um, we're going to kind of go a little deep here, and I pray that you would speak to us, keep us alert and awake, and uh, show us um, maybe something that has captured our thoughts, maybe that we've gotten off center, or maybe we believe something to be true but that isn't true, that is just a plausible, a good-sounding deception. And so, um, Spirit of God, enlighten us today with your truth, with your wisdom. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen. So Paul's going to move on to this in in the next couple verses. Um, You've heard me say a lot lately that the problem with being deceived is that you're deceived. And that if you knew you were deceived, most of us would do something to step out of that deception so that we are no longer deceived deceived. The problem is that when you're deceived, you don't know you're deceived. Have you ever been lost and not know that you were lost? And so you just continue on the road. You think you're good. And then some 100 miles later, you realize we are lost. And you're way down that road. My kids tell a story of getting lost with their mom hiking through the desert. And uh, the older they have gotten, the story has gotten worse. And so now they would have you believe that they almost died in that desert. My daughter would tell you that she fractured her ankle and she twisted it very slightly. My kids would tell you they were fainting from uh, 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 dehydration. Uh, they would swear that mom was sizing them up to see who would be the first to be eaten, right? They were that lost. They were, they were out there. If you're lost and you know you're lost, you would ask for directions if you're not a dude. You would ask for directions so you could not be lost anymore. The problem is, is that if you're lost and you don't know you're lost, You'll just continue down a road thinking it's going to take you to a destination that you want to be at when in fact it's leading you further from the place you're supposed to be. And I'm guessing that today there are some of us who are going through life or maybe making important life decisions on a set of beliefs or assumptions that are flawed. That some of us are living our Christian faith based upon a theology or a belief structure that is defective. And the problem is, is that we're deceived and we don't know that we're deceived. We're lost and don't know that we're lost. In order to be free from deception, we must first realize we're deceived, right? In order to be set free, we must first realize that we are a hostage. And so Paul's going to kind of talk about this deception that, 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 that weaves its way into our thinking, into our culture, even the culture within the church. But before we jump into that, I want us to take a detour, and then we're going to come back to Colossians 2. I want us to take a detour uh, and look at 2 Corinthians. Now, Corinthians was just another letter that Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. Same idea. Listen to what he says. He says, but I am afraid... I'm concerned for you that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, that your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Paul's concern is for the mind, listen, and who holds control 
over it. He says, I'm concerned that your thoughts may have been taken captive and led astray by thoughts that in reality were not your thoughts. Because whoever has your mind has your future. And if you want to take back your future, you need to take back your thoughts. More, more, more than that, your thoughts need to be submitted to the truth of Christ. And so Paul references this idea of creation where he says the deceiver, the great manipulator, uh, 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 deceived Eve. And the same deceiver that manipulated Eve is now out to deceive you. And he gives this reference to, I'm concerned that your mind may have somehow been led astray. Now, we don't have time to go through the whole creation account and the fall. Uh, but we know that the great manipulator lured Eve away through crafty words and, de- and deception and trickery by saying things like, uh, God's holding out on you. That, that re- in reality, God is jealous and doesn't want you to have the same authority or the same insight that he has. Lied by saying things like, uh, uh, it's not going to be as bad as you think, or it's not going to be as bad as God said, so you should partake of it. It will even make life better. Now, I want you to catch something. Please, pay attention. You can go back to sleep after this. Satan's method, go ahead and put that up. Satan's method of deception is to place his thoughts in your mind until you believe his thoughts are your thoughts. And if he plants his thoughts in your mind long enough, in my mind long enough, I will believe that his thoughts are my thoughts. And this doesn't happen quickly. It happens over time. He lures us away slowly. And when his thoughts have been in the soil of my mind long enough, his thoughts become my thoughts. And once I think they're my thoughts, I'm in trouble. Because if I recognize they're his thoughts, I can fight against it. But when it's my thoughts, my thoughts are always right. Aren't your thoughts always right? Right? We're not uncommon in that. Listen, Genesis 3. It says, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took and she ate. When his thoughts became her thoughts, she was deceived. But catch this. They were not her thoughts by origination. They were her thoughts by adoption. In other words, they weren't, they weren't her thoughts. They were planted there long enough until his thoughts became her thoughts. And once he had her mind, he had her emotions, her feelings, and feelings are hard to shake. We've all said, well, I can't help what I feel. You ever been in an argument with somebody when you're in a relationship and you're like, well, this is how I feel. And they're like, well, that's stupid. And you're like, well, I can't help how I feel. Right? This is just how I feel. And so once, once her thoughts were conquered and it led to her emotions, her feelings, her actions were just not far behind. Once, the, once she adopted his thoughts as her thoughts, she surrendered her emotions, her feelings, and then she acted upon what she felt. But they weren't her thoughts by origination, they were her thoughts by adoption. This is what we hear from Judas, right, who, who sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And, and, and but the Bible tells us that who put the thoughts in his mind? Or they were Satan's thoughts, right? And then uh, Ananias and Sapphira and, and, and Acts who sold land to give to the church and then decided, well, we're going to hold back some of that money for ourselves, which they didn't have to give all of it, but they said they were giving all of it, but they held some of it back. But then Scripture says, no, 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 it was Satan who deceived them. It was Satan who planted the thoughts. 
right? We, we, we can see this over and over again where, where Jesus is talking about going to the cross and Peter says, you're not going to the cross. And what does, Peter, what does Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan, right? Because the thoughts in your mind right now are not your thoughts by origination, they're your thought by adoption. And we can see this over and played out over and over and over again. Now, Satan just doesn't do this to us as individuals, but he does this to a culture as well. Where if he can get a culture to think long enough that eventually we begin to, the culture begins to think that, that his thoughts are their thoughts. And Paul starts to address this now in Colossians 2 where he says, see to it that no one takes you captive. Other translations say, see to it that no one cheats you or carries you off through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elements. Hey guys, somebody run my uh, iPad up please in the pen. I'm sorry, I left it back there. Uh, don't switch over yet, though. Um, uh, through philosophy, uh, and, or through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and on elemental spiritual forces of this world, rather than according to Christ. In other words, Paul's saying, thank you, brother. Paul's saying, you need to protect your mind from hollow and deceptive thinking. Because if you don't, you're going to be cheated. You're going to be cheated out of something that, uh, was, was always meant to be yours, whether you possess it now or whether it's something that you possess in the future, Paul says, look, there's something going on and you have to be aware of it. So if you're not alert, you're going to be cheated out of your, you can stay on that passage, guys, you're going to be cheated out of your future. Now, my wife and I, I don't know if you've ever been cheated. We were cheated uh, years ago, probably 20 years ago, uh, from someone who was in the church Made it seem like they had our best interest in mind. Uh, this is going way back. There's nobody here. Actually, they're in the first row. Uh, no, it's going way back. <laughs> Made it sound like they had our best interest in mind. I've known this person for years and years and years. We were friends and cheated us out of a pretty substantial amount of money when we were, uh, we were broke. And um, it hurts to be cheated, right? Somebody takes something that's from you, either through decept- deception or flattery, whatever, whatever that looks like. And so uh, the passage that we're reading from actually says, see to it that no one takes you captive. It's actually referencing carrying off as to the spoils of war. And so Paul says, look, if you're not careful, once the enemy has conquered you, your future is up for grabs. That if you're not careful what thoughts you adopt as your own, what philosophies you adopt as your own, when his thoughts become your thoughts, that your future, you can be carried off. That when the enemy conquers you, you become the spoils of war. Hey, you want to know, for for some, if the enemy conquers you, your family may become the spoil of war. Right? There's a lot writing on this is what Paul is trying to say. And so I'm kind of sounding the alarm today, shooting flares out into the night sky that your mind contains thoughts and a system of beliefs that lead you to actions that determine your future. And we should all take a step back to see who or what is influencing our thoughts. Because if you lose this fight, and if our mind is seized, and if your thoughts are conquered, and if we adopt a philosophy that is established, that squeezes out the truth of Christ, then to the victor goes the spoils, is what Paul is saying here. So you might ask, well, then how, how do we get carried off? How do we lose this thing? Well, look, look what he says. Through hollow and deceptive philosophy, through human tradition, and through spiritual forces. Look at that last one. C.S. Lewis says that, 
our worldview falls into two categories when we talk about spiritual forces. The, the one, he says, is that we can be excessive and have an unhealthy interest in it. And so you go outside tomorrow and your car doesn't start and you're like, the devil's out to get me. There's a demon behind everything. You haven't changed the oil in 12 years, but it's the devil who's out to get me, right? We can, there can be an unhealthy obsession, right? My radiator hose broke and right away it was like, Satan, I heard it say it, right? It was hissing, right? There's an unhealthy deception. But then he said the other one is, is that there's a dif- disbelief or there's an ignorance that everything is a natural cause, that nothing is supernatural. And listen, the Bible speaks very clearly of a supernatural realm that is all around us and that there is a spiritual enemy whose purpose is to steal, kill, and to, dest- and to destroy everything that God wants to establish in you. And what that means is that some of what some of us are going through right now is not natural. Some of it is spiritual. Some of it is a spiritual attack that's coming against you. Some of the thoughts and the beliefs that we have are not natural. They've been planted and his thoughts have become our thoughts. So look at Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive, cheats you, carries you off through hollow deception of philosophy, which depends on human tradition and elementary spirit, elemental spiritual forces. How are we carried away? Well, deceptive philosophy he talks about, and human wisdom that squeezes out Jesus. Uh, and it's everywhere in our culture right now. We're cheated by human tradition that, well, we've always done it this way, and this is what I always thought, or Grandpa always said, right? But they're, they're, they're contrary to the things of, of Christ. So, with the time we have left, give me about 10, 15 minutes, I want us to explore some empty philosophies that are in our culture today that if we're not careful, as Paul says, can carry us off because it gets us off center and gets us away from truth. Here's some empty, empty philosophies. The first one is what I call, go to the next slide, is what is truth? Uh, interesting conversation Jesus had with Pilate during his arrest. He said, Pilate said, you're a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus said, uh, answered, you are right in saying that I am a king. In fact, For this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world to testify to the truth. Everyone who is on the side of truth, he says what? Listens to me. Pilate asked the question, what has been debated for centuries? He said, what is, go to the next slide, he says, what is truth? What is truth exactly? And today we see two forces at play. The first one is relativism put it up on the screen, that says that truth is relative. There is uh, therefore no absolute truth. Listen, relativism says this, that no idea, no belief is universally true. Instead, truth is relative. That is, the validity of that truth depends upon circumstances, culture, upon society, upon historical uh, context in which they're applied. That there is no truth anywhere That is universal or constant. They say that truth changes or evolves as we become more enlightened. Now, uh, the first person to kind of bring this to light was a 19th century philosopher, German philosopher by the name of Hegel. And Hegel came up with what is known as the Hegelian dialectic. Dialectic is just a conversation uh, of truth. And and here's what he said. We'll switch over to the iPad. Uh, Hegel said this. He said, when an argument... And we can call this either a thesis or we can call this truth. 
He says, when an argument, when a perceived truth collides with a counter-argument, or we could say this is the antithesis or the antithesis, right? The direct opposite uh, or an opposing truth. Hegel said, when an argument or when a thesis or when truth meets with a counter-argument, right? Or, a, or an antithesis, the direct opposite of that truth. Hegel said, what is developed is a synthesis, and a synthesis is a new truth or an evolved truth. And then what Hegel would say is that this process starts all over again. That this new truth eventually will meet a new counter-truth and then it's going to spin off again into a new synthesis. And it just continues to happen over and over and over again. And Hegel said this because no truth is constant. That no truth is universal and truth is always evolving and there's always a new truth. And so we would say, uh, as we look at this uh, in Scripture, we would say that there's biblical truth from the Bible, right, that hopefully we would believe, but that biblical truth is meaning a culture that has a different truth and what we're seeing today is it's spinning off to a new truth And that new truth is one that is palatable and that feels good and that makes sense to us and it works within culture. But this new truth is going to meet again eventually. It's going to meet a counter-argument and it's going to spin off into another new truth. And you can see how things eventually get so watered down because there is no truth anywhere. Now, understand, a lot of good has come out of this. Let's not be naive, right? A lot of things that we believed to be true 200 years ago, right, met a counter-argument, and we had a new synthesis that was developed, a new truth, and we're better off for it. The problem is, is that this argument now has said that no truth is constant, including God's truth. And God's truth constantly goes through this process as well. Let me give you an example. Back in the 40s and 50s, uh, marriage uh, uh, was a sacred institution. Uh, divorce was fairly uncommon. In the 60s, anyone remember the 60s? Of course you don't. You were stoned. No one remembers the 60s. In the 60s, it was drugs and free love and, and unrestrained sexuality, right? And, and a new norm for a new youth movement. And so it was the institution of marriage collides with, no, 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 it's just free love and relationship, and if it feels good, be in love with whoever. They collide, and the new truth was that marriage just isn't all that important. And so we go from a divorce rate from 20% to a divorce rate of about 50% in the 70s. Now, I know that's a really simplified view of that, but it, it kind of gives you the idea. And this process continues because there's no truth. Truth is relative. And so we're seeing that even within the church where God's truth has now been watered down because it's been sent through this process so many times because there's no constant truth. The second one that's at play in our culture is this idea of subjectivism. Go back to your computer if you don't mind. It's a belief that I, the subject, have the right to determine what is right and wrong or what is truth without submitting my judgment to anyone or any outside, uh, any authority outside of myself. The simplest version of this says this. 
that if you say that X is wrong, what you're meaning is that X is wrong to you. But that X is not universally wrong because I get to determine my own truth. I mean, how many times have we seen that played out in our culture today? These are, this is the new deceptive philosophy 2,000 years ago. They had their own with Gnosticism, things like this. This is the new deceptive philosophy that's in, in, in 2018, this relativism and, and subjectivism. And so where does it lead us? Subjectivism and relativism leads us to this hollow philosophy. It's the philosophy of tolerance. Tolerance used to mean that I can disagree with you, but because I see value in you as a person, as, a, as an image bearer of God, that I can put up with you, and I can tolerate you, and I can forbear with you. If you want to get a mullet, I would hate it, but I can tolerate it, right? Today, tolerance has, has, has changed. Today, tolerance means not that I put up with you. Today, tolerance means that I celebrate you. And uh, neither of us are wrong, because we're both right, and we should both be celebrated. Why? Because Truth is relative, and truth is subjective, and you have your truth, and I have my truth, and so there is no universal truth, and so my truth is just as strong as your truth, so let's celebrate one another, and if you don't celebrate me, then you're intolerant, and I have no tolerance for your intolerance. You're like, but isn't that the very thing that you know? I'm intolerant of your intolerance. That's how tolerant I am. Like, you've lost me a while back, right? And you felt the hostility towards churches over this. Fingers pointed, probably the number one complaint of churches today is the church is intolerant. Now listen, some of the world has been justified in feeling that because we've been idiots. We've been unloving, we've been rude, we've been elitist, we've tried to, you know, we just cast them aside and marginalize them, and we're guilty of that, Unfortunately. It's not what I want to be said about this church, but here's, here's the reality. It doesn't matter how loving we will be, and we will always be loving. We will always see people as image bearers of God, whether we agree with them or not. We will always be loving, but we will always stand for what we believe is truth. Not, unwavering, not, 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 not wavering truth that changes with culture, but an unwavering truth that we find in God's word. But here's the reality is no matter how loving we will be, at some point, we will be seen as just being another one of those intolerant churches. This will not go away. It's the philosophy of our age. And let me tell you why it won't go away. Because tolerance, listen, is the opposite of repentance. And it will not go away. Because tolerance says there's nothing in me that needs to change. And scripture says, no, 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 no. We're all sinners and we're all warped and we need our hearts rebirthed. Scripture says all of us need to change. And this idea of this philosophy of tolerance says, don't tell me that I need to change anything. Just celebrate with me. And so is God tolerant? Yeah, God is tolerant. God calls everyone to himself. Doesn't matter your past, what you've done, where you've been, where you're at right now. God calls everyone. Doesn't matter on race, uh, uh, religious background, education. None of it matters. God calls, God calls everyone to himself. But then he doesn't leave us there. I heard someone say that tolerance is God saying, come as you are. But then repentance is saying, acknowledge who you are. And love is God saying, I will change who you are. 
And so that's the gospel story, right? And, and, and today, people want to celebrate things that they should be repenting over. That's the reality of, of, of the empty, hollow philosophy that we live in today. Relativism and subjectivism has led us down this road. Here's some other uh, uh, empty philosophies that it has led us to. Here's one. Uh, if it feels good, do it. Right? I mean, how often have we heard that? If it makes you happy, that's all that matters. Listen, you don't even need to be a Christian to debunk this one. Go and spend 12 months doing whatever feels good to you. And then come back and tell me how life is. Let me tell you what it's going to look like. You're going to be in broke in so much debt you won't know how to get out of it. Your family is going to be in ruins. Your children are going to be wounded. Life, you're going to be morally bankrupt, right? Whoever said if it feels good, do it. Come on, man. My heart leads me astray too frequently. But this is kind of the philosophy in the world, whatever it is, the, the bottom line is your happiness. And if it makes you happy, then that's what we judge our actions by. I'm justified by whatever makes me happy. In, in the church world, it's taken on a different look where we actually say this, that God wants me to be happy. That, hey, that's what God's about. God wants me to be happy. And so if it makes me happy, God must be in it. And if it doesn't make me happy, then God must not be around it. Because God wants me to be happy. Here's another empty philosophy. doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe something. Right? We've heard this. Let's try this with other areas of life. doesn't matter what key you use to start your car as long as it's a key. <laughs> try this one. doesn't matter whose bank account you deposit your check in as long as it's an account. doesn't matter what house you're going to go home to today. Just pick a house. Tomorrow when you get up for work, doesn't matter what job you go, just go walk in and say, I'm at, doesn't matter what job, I'm just at a job. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense at all. I mean, the basic tenets of it doesn't make sense, but we kind of adopt this thing of doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you believe in something. Here's this other one we see heavily in the church is there's an overemphasis on prosperity, right? That, that only good will come to those who believe. And if you're in Christ, nothing bad will ever happen to you. I had this conversation with somebody two weeks ago. Something happened. They said, I'm really, God let me down. Those were the words. God let me down because I was praying that my child would be protected and something bad happened. It's like, oh, man. It's like we, we've kind of adopted some false theology in, in, in the church. And God's just become this vending machine that is supposed to, give us everything that we want in life. And that's, and that's just not what we see in the gospel. But truth has evolved into this, well, this is who God is, right? God should give me everything that I want to have a life that is roses. Here's another empty philosophy that's way, worked its way in this church is this exaggerated view of grace. There is a philosophy today where the attributes of, attributes of God are being systematically torn down and cast aside. So God is holy. Let's not talk about that one. God's justice. Let's not talk about that one. God's righteousness. Let's not talk about that one. We elevate one characteristic of God today, and it is God is what? God is grace. God is love. God is love, man. Let's just talk about God is love. And if God is love, you can do whatever you want, be whatever you want, go wherever you want. And because God is love, in the end, God's going to just come on in. Come on. 
And it's worked its way into the church where we have this over-exaggerated view of grace because God is love. And in the church, we kind of feel like it doesn't really matter what I do, how I'm living, what life is about. And it's wrong. Paul says in, in Romans 6, he says, hey, there was a belief in the Roman church that if, if the grace of God is what saves us, then the more we sin, we're just highlighting the grace of God. The teaching was, the more I sin, the more it gives God an opportunity to show his grace. And we're showing people, look how great God is. So I'm going to sin more because God's being glorified. And Paul wrote to him in, in Romans 1. He says, what should we say? Should we continue in sin that grace may increase? And Paul said, translation, he says, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. That's my translation. But that's basically what he was saying. He's like, this is ridiculous. And then he goes on to build this case throughout all of Romans that those who are in Christ, that our sinful nature should be, putting, should be putting to death, right? And he builds this whole thing of putting on cross to Christ and taking off our old nature. And, and listen, it's subtle the way it moves and it works its way into our culture. And what it is is Satan will drop his thoughts into our thoughts, into the thoughts of culture, until we believe that his thoughts are, are our thoughts. Paul closes Colossians 2.8. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition, the elements of spiritual forces of this world, rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And in Christ, you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and every authority. Here's what Paul's saying. You want to know how to be carried away from deceptive philosophy? Remain in Christ. And so I leave you with this thought. When we talk about what is truth, truth is not uh, a what. Truth is a who. Truth is Jesus. And so if you're looking for truth, my suggestion is start with Jesus. Jesus said it this way in John 14. He said, look, I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. Look, whatever it is that you're looking for, we can get easily deceived. And Paul's telling the church of Colossae, we can get easily deceived and swept away by plausible arguments that seem right and there may be a portion of truth in it. And over time, it's one small step, one small step, one small step. And then we take Jesus plus anything and we've ruined everything. Paul says, look, if you want to stay, stay rooted in Jesus for he is your truth. Daddies, you want to stay rooted? Stay rooted in Jesus. That's my word for you today. Stand with me. All right, on your way out, there are uh, White Castle cheeseburgers, pizza rolls, and corn dogs, and just a bunch of junk food. <laughs> Jesus, take us quickly. That's what that <laughs> All right, pray with me, Lord. Um, all of us, we kind of need to take a step back and kind of reevaluate. And uh, are we are we living in flawed truth? And how have we been deceived a little bit? And maybe we don't know that we're deceived. And I would pray for your truth to rest upon us and the truth of Jesus, the truth of Jesus. That's my prayer for our entire church, that we would be rooted and found in Jesus. And if we would do that, if we would pursue you, 
you'll keep us on the path of truth. And so bless each person. Jesus, bless us with your truth and your wisdom and your insight moving us forward in life. I pray today is a day full of grace and mercy and just of laughter and family and friends, a time of Whatever it is we'll be doing, a time of good food, of good World Cup soccer, of good naps, whatever it is for us, I pray a blessing upon each person as we continue to seek you in truth. In Jesus' name, amen. Happy Father's Day, man. Grab some food on your way out. God bless you guys.